You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Our Bible reading today is from 2 Kings um, chapter 22, 1-2, and 2 Kings 23, 21-27. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. 2 Kings 23, 21-27. And the king commanded to all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the eighteenth year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, and as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off his, this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house for which I said, My name shall be there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Latisse. Well, it's great to see everyone uh, this afternoon. As we finish off our series in Kings, it's been a, a bit of a whirlwind trip through some of the highlights of uh, these two books, First and Second Kings. I really want to encourage you, if you have an opportunity, to read it over the summer holidays. It's amazing stories and uh, an extraordinary kind of uh, contrast of opportunity, but uh, wasted opportunity, power and corruption, uh, godliness, and also incredible evil. And as we come to the last of the Kings that we're going to look at today, we we actually come to the best of the best, the best of all the kings that we've seen, really the top gun of kings. And uh, we see in how he's described here in verse 25, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Uh, he is the best that there has been and the best that there would be. 
really, to understand why he's so great, it's important to also understand what came before him. Uh, most of all, his grandfather, Manasseh, who was one of the very worst kings. Uh, Manasseh, we're told in chapter 21, did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Uh, He reigned for 55 years, the longest reign of any of the kings, and this was a terrible time. As the writer Tony Morita says, a good slogan for his reign would be, anything you can do, I can do worse. In chapter 21, we're given a catalogue of his disgraces. Verse 16, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. It's actually suggested in Jewish tradition that he was responsible for the death of the prophet Isaiah, soaring him in two. Uh, And under his leadership, the people descended into the same kind of savagery and grotesqueness. In verse 9, we're told, Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel, which is such a a sad situation. God had chosen his people. He had set his heart and his love on them so that they would be different to all the other nations. And now they're actually worse than those nations. And probably the worst part of Manasseh's reign was the way he led his people into idolatry. Uh, His father, Hezekiah, one of the very best kings, had tried to end the worship of Baal, but Manasseh Manasseh brought it back. And then he added some new gods as well. Verse 3, he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Uh, A lot of the ancient nations worshipped the stars as if they were gods themselves. And Manasseh adds this to their kind of uh, smorgasbord of gods. And then he followed these gods with a passion that is quite horrifying. Uh, Child sacrifice was a really big thing in these religions. If you really wanted something from those gods, you had to prove how much you wanted it. And a child sacrifice was one way of doing that. And Manasseh did that. He sacrificed his own son to these gods. And even more than that, it wasn't just that he followed these false gods. It was that there was a kind of spitefulness in the way he treated the true God. Uh, He created altars for all these other gods in the house of God, in the precious temple. These gods took over God's house. Uh, The worship of these gods included lots of perverse sexual ceremonies and Manasseh encouraged these in the temple. In fact, they set up houses for the male prostitutes at the temple. This is just an utter desecration of God's house. He's He's whizzing on the carpet, so to speak. That's what's happening here. He's deliberately and outrageously defying God. And so in the midst of this horrific rain, God sends his people a message of judgment, of doom. Because of their abominations, God says in verse 12 of 21, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. It'll be like a screeching horror, like... Uh, fingernails down a blackboard everyone when they hear about this their ears will tingle God says I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day and see there's a history here God has warned them and called them back and encouraged them and invited them and implored them to come back to him in obedience, but they've constantly rejected him and now he's done. God says, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. He's just going to destroy them. This 
is the context into which Josiah comes to the throne. He doesn't come straight away. Manasseh's son, Amon, uh, rules for about two years. He's just as bad as his dad and then he's assassinated. And then Josiah emerges and he's actually only eight years old when he takes the crown. But in the eighth year of his reign, we're told, when he was just a boy, he began to seek after God. So he's 16 years old and he's seeking after God, wanting to understand and follow him. And then here in chapter 22, we read, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father, his forefather, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He, he sets his heart on following God and he does that intently for the rest of his life. And really, he gave his life to reforming the nation. First, he reintroduces God's law, uh, searching through the temple one day. Some of his men discover a copy of the book of the law. Uh, really, that's probably the book of Deuteronomy. And, and they find this and they bring it back together. And, and uh, Josiah calls all the people, both small and great, to hear God's word again. And they commit to obeying that and then he stands up in front of everyone. He makes a covenant to say, this is the God's law and I'm going to follow it and I want you to follow it too. And he says, I'm resolving to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all my heart and all my soul. And those words are significant. They actually come from Deuteronomy 6 where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That passage is called the Shema. Uh, it's a very famous part of Jewish understanding. And it shows that Josiah understands what God's law is all about. It's about full obedience, a total obedience, heart and soul, inside and outside, all the person, all the time, all the way. And it shows that he's, he's trying to help the people do this as well. You see, they were supposed to repeat the Shema every day as a kind of a pledge of allegiance almost to kind of shape their identity as God's people. And now Josiah is bringing it back. He wants the whole of the nation to follow after God. With that in place, uh, he also gets rid of all the idols. Chapter 22, verse 4, The king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. And we're told that he actually burned these up. And I, I think that's so significant. See, he's really responding to, the, to this in the right way. He knows that he can't just kind of put these in a cupboard somewhere and hope no one finds them. He knows that as soon as people find them, they'll go back to that worship. And so he destroys the idol. He burns them up. And then he actually goes on the attack uh, where the people had allowed God's house to be defiled, now Josiah deliberately defiles the, the high places, the special places for the other gods. He sort of goes uh, a counterattack so that they have nowhere to worship their gods. And then he gets rid of the people who are leading the people astray, the mediums, the necromancers. We're told that he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes that were in the house of the Lord he deposes the prophets of Baal, executes the priests of the high places according to all the laws laid down by God. And then he actually goes into people's homes and gets rid of their household gods as well. But it's not just what he gets rid of, it's also what he brings in. And so he recovers the Passover. Now, the Passover, of course, was this sacred meal for God's people given to them in the time of the Exodus as a way of remembering God's grace and his strength. 
But remarkably, it hadn't been celebrated for centuries, not since the time of the judges. And Josiah brings it back because he wants the people to remember their God, the God who chose them and loves them, the God who'd been gracious to them and had led them and revealed himself to them and the God they were to follow with heart and soul and mind, just as he was seeking to do. Well, it's a remarkable catalogue of changes that Josiah brings in. And a few things jumped out to me as I studied it during the week. And, and the big thing is that jumps out to me is the power of God's word, uh, the importance of God's word, uh, both when it's there and when it's not, when God's word is heard, but also when God's word is ignored. Everything stems from this. You see, when, when Josiah came to the throne, God's word had been lost. It had been silenced. It's only rediscovered quite by accident. As I said before, he, Josiah's got some guys uh, rooting around in the temple trying to find stuff and fix up the temple, and they just stumble upon God's word. And the fact that it needs to be rediscovered tells us all that we need to know about how far they've gone off track. You see, God's word was supposed to be front and centre. It was supposed to be right there in the Holy of Holies, right next to the Ark of the Covenant. The priests were supposed to read it out to the people periodically. Remember, this is, this is an oral culture. They don't have Bibles of their own. So the, the priests are responsible for reading it out regularly. And then the king was supposed to read it out as well and to, to base his whole rule on God's law. Deuteronomy 17, when, and when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, which would then be approved, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that he might not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. See, he was supposed to physically write it out so that he would learn God's law and then base his life on that and then base his whole rule, help the whole nation follow after this. But now, because of Manasseh and because of the other kings, it's been basically discarded and forgotten. They didn't want to hear God's word, which is such a tragedy. I mean, God had revealed himself in a unique way to Israel. And now they've kind of rejected that. They've put it away and left it to rot. It's so sad. But it's also so wonderful when Josiah rediscovers it. I mean, that moment feels a bit like Indiana Jones. They just kind of stumble upon this thing in the middle of all this dust and the cobwebs. And as soon as they find it, they're determined to listen to it. It's been in the wrong hands but now it's in the right hands. Because Josiah is willing to listen to God, everything will change. And that just emphasises for us the power of God's word, when it's there and when it's not, when it's heard and when it's ignored. When it was ignored, evil flourished. Everyone did whatever they wanted. They followed after all these false gods. But when Josiah found it and listened to it, the false gods were thrown out. The idols were destroyed. The sinful practices were stopped. The Passover was reinstated. Everything changed. And so it has been throughout history. Wherever God's word is listened to and heard and sought after, things change. In January 
1519, a Swiss priest called Ulrich Zwingli started reading the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse and it sparked the Reformation in Switzerland. Uh, he rescued the church from uh, heresy and idolatry, but it also led to radical change in the city itself. And we're told that in later years, when citizens looked back on what God had done, they recognised that it had all begun with the plain, straightforward preaching of the Word of God. God's Word does things. When we read it, when we study it, God works through it. Some of my favourite verses, really, the, the verses that kind of define the way I view ministry come from 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When we study God's word, things happen. God teaches us, he instructs us about how we should live. He reproves and challenges us where we might be getting it wrong. He corrects our wrong thinking. He trains us in the right thinking and then equips us for every good thing. That's why here at City on a Hill, we preach the Bible. We believe that it's breathed out by God's word, that it does something, that the God who breathed into this world to make creation breathes into our hearts when we study the word to do new creation, a recreation. And so you can trust this. You can trust this in your own life. When you open the Bible, come to it with expectancy. Maybe use 2 Timothy 3 as a prayer every time you open the word. Trust that God will do something. Ask him to correct, for, to train, to equip you. Consider every passage that you read against that matrix. And then trust that it will happen in the lives of others. Maybe there's someone in your life who's exploring Christianity. Or they've got questions and you think to yourself, ah, oh, I've got to find a really good book for them. Maybe there's something by Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis or John Lennox or something like that. And these guys can really explain the faith well and answer tough questions. They're very, very good at that. But don't neglect the word of God. Trust that if you give them the Bible, something will happen. I was talking to someone at church from our church just the other day and she was explaining how she's got this friend who's exploring Christianity. And he said to her, oh, I'm just desperate. I just want to study the Bible with someone. God has given him a thirst for truth. And we can anticipate, we can expect that something will happen when he studies God's word. Big things happen when people read the Bible. Lives are changed. We have in our church a number of people from the Gideons. You probably know the Gideons. They put out free Bibles throughout hotels throughout the world. And there are some amazing things that they can, the amazing testimonies of people who have picked up these Bibles in the strangest of places and had their lives changed. I was reading the story of a woman called Katrina the other day. She writes, For you to understand the magnitude and the impact that a purposely placed Bible can have, I need to explain to you where I came from, where I was at and where I was going to. She says, Three and a half years ago I was in prison. I'd been through extreme domestic violence and had turned to drugs. I was hospitalised many times and I was caught driving, escaping from my perpetrator while I was on drugs. I found myself in Adelaide prison, jailed for three months. 
The first night in prison, I was bashed and had my arm broken. I was then placed into high security. It consisted of a four-by-four cell, a toilet, and nothing else. I was all alone, and I was broken. My children were with relatives, and I had nothing except a Gideon's Bible. I opened up the Bible, and I read Psalm 34. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It was then that I surrendered. I got on my knees and I said to the Lord, please help me. After that night, my life has never been the same. God showed me again and again how much he loved me. And now three and a half years later, I'm completely drug free. Extraordinary. Well, the story of Patrick, he writes, I was lying on the floor in a room at the Piccadilly Hotel, Wollongong, after my third suicide attempt when I met Jesus. He'd been addicted to drugs as a teenager gotten very ill, needed a lung transplant. And he says, amidst the hopelessness of my situation, I wanted to end my life and I couldn't even successfully do that. I tried three times and failed every time. Following my third attempt, I woke up on the floor where one of my friends who accepted Jesus was staying. She handed me a Bible and I began to read it. This alone was a miracle because I couldn't read. The Bible was the first book that I read. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour, And he gave me a new life. I was in the darkness, but now I'm in the light. I'm now at Bible College. I've managed a business and I share the gospel every day on radio. I thank Jesus for everything he has done. And I thank you, listen to this, I thank you for planting the seed of eternity in that hotel. What a beautiful way to think about this. This week, this month, this Christmas, Is there someone that you can give a Bible to? What might God do through that act? See, the power of God's word when it's heard. But also there's a flip side here because we see the power of God's word when it's ignored. We see the cost of ignoring God's word. You see, when Josiah read the law of God for the first time. We're told in chapter 22 that he tore his clothes. It was as a sign of grief and conviction because he understood as he read God's law, he also understood the danger that God's people were in, the consequences of ignoring God's word. See, God's law also showed to the people not just how to live, But what would happen if they failed to follow after him? And he says to the rest of the people, Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so he he seeks for a word from a prophet. Can can he find some information, some clarity? What's going to happen to us? He seeks out a woman called Huldah, a prophetess, And she gives him a very troubling message, 22 verse 16. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. God is saying, I will do just like I said I would do. And then Holder goes on, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. And so it comes to pass. In chapter 23, in the the passage that we read, we, we see Josiah's reforms, but at the end of it we read, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath 
by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. There's a stay of execution for Josiah while he's there because of his humility, because of his penitence. God holds off his judgment until he's passed away. But after his death, things quickly unravel. Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, reigns 11 years and we're told that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. During his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, overpowers him, making Jehoiakim his servant for three years. He eventually rebels but doesn't go well because God actually turns on him and sends foreign armies to destroy his own people. And we're reminded why, 2 Kings 24, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for all the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Jehoiakim is succeeded by a bloke called Jehoiachin, but he lasts only three months. Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem, takes everything, all the treasures of the king's palace and the temple, 10,000 captives, and Jehoiachin himself. Then comes Zedekiah, and again, we're told that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, but he's put down. Jerusalem is besieged once more, and God's house is burnt to the ground. Zedekiah is captured, uh, and his eyes are gouged out, but not before he's forced to watch his sons be slaughtered in front of him. And so we see that God's word is fulfilled. He said he would not pardon them, and he does not. Now, we might question this. Like, why didn't God show mercy? Why Wasn't he supposed to show mercy? Surely there was some way that they could have mercy. But the reality is they had just gone too far. They repeatedly offended God. And provoked him to anger. We're told as ultimately it was because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. But the reality is that they sinned before Manasseh, they sinned during the time of Manasseh, and they sinned afterwards as well. In fact, even as everything was falling apart, they actually hardened in their sin. As their, as their world is falling apart, they say, Oh, if only we had kept worshipping the goddess of the stars. When we worshipped them, everything was fine. But now because we've stopped worshipping them, because of Josiah basically, everything's gone wrong. And so 2 Kings 24 we read, For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and in Judea that he cast them out from his presence. And so when we come to consider the reign of Josiah, there's something very bittersweet about it really it's just an interval it's a moment in time it's an interruption to all the evil but not an end to it they did the wrong thing before they did the wrong thing after his reforms are really too little too late and so there's lessons here for us about the limits of a human king josiah was just a man and just one man. 
He's a remarkable man, a remarkable king. Before him, there was no king like him. After him, there was none after would arise like him as well. He made important reforms, but he was just a man. He was flawed, in fact. He was quite imperfect. We see this with his death, that it's apparent that he seems to defy God, God's advice, God's wisdom, and he ends up dying because of it. He was just a man. And more than that, he was just one man. See, he could bring in great reforms, he could lead the way, he could set an example, but he couldn't change the hearts of the people. You see, you have to kind of wonder if they were just kind of going along with him while he was there. Uh, One writer points out that throughout the narrative of Josiah, we always see him take the initiative. He sends someone to the temple. They find that God's law, he commands them to find out more from God. He sends for all the leaders to come. He commands the cleansing of the temple. He commands the people to celebrate Passover. He's leading the way. It shows his dedication. But you have to wonder if others are following in sincerity. There seem to be some good people in this story, but lots of them perhaps are just doing it because they have to fit in. And there's no deep conviction underneath. As John Ollie puts it, Josiah might love God with his heart and soul and strength and so issue laws for change, but whilst a change of heart can be modelled, it cannot be imposed. Josiah was just a man, just one man. And it points us to the need for someone who can change people's hearts. It points us to Jesus. That's what we're seeing throughout this series, isn't it? Every one of these kings points to the true king, the ultimate king, the best king, the king who was coming to Jesus. See, ultimately, even Josiah couldn't keep the law perfectly. None of us can keep God's law perfectly. So often we're tempted to turn away from God's law and to silence it and to reject it. And that leads us into disaster. Ultimately, we can't keep the law, and so the law cannot bring us life. Romans 3, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In fact, the more you look at God's law, the more you realise you fall short of it. But the wonderful news is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, 600 years after Josiah, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came to fulfill God's law for us. He obeyed the law on our behalf and then he paid the penalty for our inability to keep the law. In doing so, he did everything that the law required and so it no longer stands against us. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son into the, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus has done everything that God required. 
And all we need to do is to respond to him in humility, recognizing that we've failed to do what God has asked, but trusting that he has done everything that is required. And then, wonderfully, Jesus also gives us the power to follow God's word and God's truth. See, hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophet Jeremiah gave a promise from God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The God who could not pardon them back then will give a new covenant, will start a new thing with God's people. And he says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This law that they'd thrown away, that they'd put behind and they'd thrown into the dust and the cobwebs, God is going to take out and put into people's hearts so that they follow God. Josiah couldn't change people's hearts, but Jesus can. Because of Jesus, God's law is placed on our hearts so that we follow him in truth and joy and humility. We can be a part of this because Jesus is the word of God. The king of Israel is the king of the world. The word of God made flesh, showing us God and inviting all people to him. So let's respond to him. Let's listen to him. Let's trust and love and follow him and then proclaim him as the word of God, the promise of all, all of God's promise fulfilled. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this series and the things that we've seen and learnt and been challenged by. We thank you for the incredible example of Josiah, a man of great humility who sought to follow you, who discovered your truth and then based his whole life on it. We marvel at what he was able to accomplish, but we also uh, see with sadness that it still wasn't enough. And so we thank you that you sent someone else to do what Josiah couldn't do. We thank you that you sent Jesus to keep your law perfectly on our behalf and to make up for the ways we haven't followed you. Lord Jesus, you are the word of God, the word made flesh. Help us to listen to you and to follow you. Thank you that you now take up residence in our hearts through the Spirit. Help us to listen to the Spirit and to be changed by you from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.